coming up this hour. We're going to talk about Trump's COVID diagnosis, and then we're joined by senior news editor of Christianity Today, Kate Shelnut. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. It is a Monday. I don't know if it's a happy Monday or a good Monday, but it's... It's Monday. I think Mondays used to feel a lot weirder pre-COVID. Now it's just sort of like it's just a day. A day, right. a day is what it is. And normally on Mondays, uh, because so much news has happened over the weekends, we'll kind of spend this first segment hitting sort of rapid fire. Here's a bunch of stuff that happened. We're not going to do that today because the thing that everyone's been talking about since Friday morning is uh, Donald Trump's COVID diagnosis and all of the events that have followed since then. It's been pretty wild. I know he tweeted it like late, late, late at night. Uh, technically early Friday morning. And then I woke up Friday and I was like, wait, what happened? Like it just was a yeah. very bizarre social media morning, which, you know, maybe I should check social media in the morning in general. But either way, uh, Brian Fromm and I are going to talk a bit about this. But first, I wanted us to listen to about a minute of audio from President Trump himself. And uh, we'll use that as sort of a jumping off point. We're getting great reports from the doctors. This is an incredible hospital, Walter Reed. The work they do is just absolutely amazing, and I want to thank them all, the nurses, the doctors, everybody here. I've also gotten to meet some of the soldiers and the first responders, and what a group. I also think we're going to pay a little surprise to some of the great patriots that we have out on the street, and they've been out there for a long time, and they've got Trump flags, and they love our country, so I'm not telling anybody but you, but I'm about to make a little surprise visit. So perhaps I'll get there before you get to see me. But I just, uh, when I look at the enthusiasm, and we have enthusiasm like probably nobody's ever had. Our people that love the job we're doing, we have more enthusiasm than maybe anybody. So uh, it's been a very interesting journey. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. And it's a very interesting thing. And I'm going to be letting you know about it. In the meantime, we love the USA and we love what's happening. Thank you. All right, Brian. So I'd love to know not only maybe what do you think of what he said there, but what's sort of been your observations from social media with people you're talking to? What what's your takeaway? Yeah, you like I think you framed it a really good way because I got to be honest, like Friday night into Saturday morning, like I was legitimately thinking, are we going to see a tweet or a breaking news report on TV that he's like taking a big turn for the worse? Like things were they all of the reports was really ominous out there. And then about mid weekend, it seemed to turn really political, right? Like it was he took this ride to go to go wave to people. And that was so inappropriate. And now today. Uh, he's being discharged back to the White House. And he put out a tweet earlier today at one thirty that said, uh, I'm feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. And now people are going crazy on Twitter over this. And you almost can't keep up with it right now, everything that's going on around it. And so I'm on, on the one hand, I'm glad that he's doing well. He seems to be improving, although there's so much mystery about um, what, what, how bad was he? How is he now? Is he out of the woods now? Uh, and to answer your question about like, where are people at with it? I think people, uh, who, uh, love president Trump and are big in his corner are like, not just happy that he's healthy, but they're like, see, he beat COVID see this. And it's like enthuse them for him. And I think people that are against him 
you're seeing a lot of their tweets. I'm where they're saying, I'm happy he's doing well, but uh, he's failed us in this many ways around COVID. So we are, it feels already back to the politics of it. But man, it's just crazy the number of people within his inner circle who have gotten sick, all the way down to Greg Laurie, who, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie, who was with him this past weekend or two weekends ago. Uh, in that Rose Garden event, who came out today announcing that he has COVID. So, so crazy. So many things happened over the weekend, uh, but it does feel like it's starting to get back to the politics of it now. Yeah, there are a couple of things that I, I found interesting. One, um, in these videos where he he appears to not have nearly as much like surface tan or something. I don't know. I don't know what it yep. was. There, There was a very real like... I don't know, newfound humanness, I guess, to like how he was talking and the and the way he looked. I saw a lot of people talking about that. What I thought was really interesting and in some cases really troubling was on Twitter in particular, like a lot of people saying, good, I hope it kills him. Like some, some pretty, you know what I mean? Like some pretty, and yeah. some of that was from Christian people that I know, in some cases, Christian leaders. So I I tweeted something that I didn't think was that controversial about like, hey, in general, regardless of how you feel about a person or their policies, um, like celebrating someone's illness is is not is not maybe very Christ-like. And I caught some heat for that. And I saw other people say, you know, it actually needs to exist in tandem. Like, yes, you need to uh, not wish ill on a person, but also speak truth to power. And I think that that's that's a really important tension to hold. I, I found it really interesting how quickly. And again, you have him right driving in the uh, driving in the vehicle that's. You know, sealed to uh, a pretty substantial level, and a lot of people having all sorts of issues with with that. And then Trump saying something to the tune of, "Well, I think you know, the media would be mad at me if I didn't do that." So right. there's all sort of like, today, yeah. can can you even can you even win either way? It's been a very bizarre weekend, and very. And I don't know. I mean, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's been a new level of divisiveness, but it's like, man, everything. Like I didn't really think it would be a hot take to say, Hey, regardless of how you feel like we, we should, we should be praying for their recovery. Cause then other people will say things like, do you, do you pray for the health of your abuser? I'm like, Oh, okay. All right. I, I, there's a lot of memes going on right now. A lot of hot takes, a lot of mic drops. That was one of the other things I said on Friday morning. I was like, sometimes the response really is just to pray. We don't always have to have a take, you know what I mean? Mm, Which yeah. is the weirdness of having like a radio show is because we, we need to have some kind of take some kind of perspective, but I yeah it's it's been a weird a weird last seventy two hours and and in some ways it's a bit discouraging and maybe for other people they're like yeah welcome to the party man like this this kind of division has been going on for a while uh, I'd love to know like what especially in light of his his most recent tweet like how do you how do you find a way forward Yeah I think that's a great point I a great question because I do believe. Uh, that the people who were wishing ill of somebody who was sick and other people who've gotten sick, I don't think that's Christ-like behavior. And and I don't think we can talk our way around that. Um, I worry now going forward, uh, I think those people who are taking COVID really seriously are going, I hope he's learned his lesson going through it himself now that maybe this will uh, kind of make this more front and center. And there's other people who are going to go, listen, he's 74. He got through it. We're making too big a deal of this. I have a feeling that simply around COVID, the fact that the president has had it, continues to have it and has gotten through it and other people are getting through it is actually going to polarize people more. 
Uh, going, hey, I feel like now we need to take it more seriously. But I think there's a segment, especially of his followers, are going to go, hey, he got through it, and they're not going to want to talk about the health care he got and all this stuff. They're going to want to say, listen, he has all the comorbidities you can think, and he got through it. Let's stop making such a big deal. And to be honest with you, the president kind of said that in his tweet earlier today. He said, don't let it dominate your life. Right. Uh, and so I think it'll be really interesting to hear what he has to say in the next week or two, assuming he comes out of it well. And all gets back to normal in the next week, two weeks, three weeks. It'll be interesting to hear what he says. I suspect it's going to be a mantra of, see, I defeated this. Uh, we need to get back to our regular lives just like I am. I think that's what's coming. Yeah, and I, I think it's yeah, it's wild to have to say all of these together because I'm obviously like I'm pro action and I'm, I'm pro voting. I, I do think for the Christ follower, it's going to become – all the more important for us to be a people of prayer. And and what's always strange to me is if, you know, again, social media is social media. If you say something like, hey, now's the time to pray. There's always somebody that's comments like, and vote. And you're like, okay, yeah, and also vote. And so it's like, and, and take action. And you're like, yeah, also, <laughs> and write your congressman. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I wasn't, yeah, yes, all of those things also. I just think, you know, one of the things that uh, I've been trying to remind myself of is that in this, this age of information whiplash, prayer is the neck brace, right? Like mm. we're, we're going to keep getting pulled in all these different directions if we don't anchor ourselves first and foremost. And I think that that will lead us to action and that will lead us to uh, advocate in solidarity and all those things that I know that Jesus calls us to. But uh, that's, I just felt compelled in this first segment to say, man, we, we yeah. really, really need to be a people of prayer. We're going to continue some of this type of discussion with Kate Shelnut. She is the senior news editor of Christianity Today. She's joining us for the next two segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're excited to have back on the show, Kate Shelnut. Welcome back to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm a reporter and editor over at Christianity Today magazine, and I, for the past few weeks and for the next several weeks, have been focusing a lot on election coverage. Uh, so this comes around right every four years. I I get thinking back to evangelicals, not just as a voting block, um, but kind of within the dynamics of, of what it means to be evangelicals um, and engaging politics according to our convictions. So that's what's been on my plate lately. And Kate, as we said, we're, we're thrilled to have you back on, especially in this election season. Uh, kind of a 50,000 foot view. I'm just curious from your reporting and all that you've thought about, how is the quote unquote evangelical vote? How does it look the same? But I'm more interested. How does it look different? How does that demographic look different than in 2016? Sure. So one thing is that 2016 and this year, and actually probably for two to three elections before that, we're looking at broadly the same patterns among evangelical voters, that they are Republican-leading voters who favor Republican candidates and care about some of the similar, the same issues and showing about the same levels of support between, you know, 75 and 83 percent of white evangelicals in particular are going to be leaning towards that Republican candidate, essentially, no matter what. Um, but this year, um, we see a bit of a contrast to 2016, which was its own kind of exception with President Trump coming into the election. And, and people really saw that as like the choice between two evils, like mm -hmm. President mm -hmm. Trump or Hillary Clinton, you know. Um, and so we get actually a lot less of that talk 
um, these days of feeling torn and feeling the tension and more evangelicals who um, are really ready to get behind um, the president for reelection really without those, those hesitations. Um, and then at the same time, more evangelicals who maybe were on the fence who have said, um, he has proven himself to be my worst fear and um, I will be moving towards the the Biden camp this time. So one of the things you referenced is LifeWay's research that shows that evangelicals are actually three times less likely to vote third party or to be undecided uh, in this election versus in 2016. Why, why do you think that is? Can you expand on that a little bit? I imagine a number of people listening feel that way and they say, yeah, those, those numbers may seem obvious to them, but maybe not to everybody. Right. I think at, at this point last year, they had almost a quarter of um, white evangelicals as undecided or third party voters. Right now, they have only 2% of evangelicals voting um, a third party candidate and maybe a handful percentage points more who are considering themselves undecided. Mm-hmm. I think um, one, so Trump is a known entity now. Um, there's a pattern of four years of, of what people can know what they would get out of him or know what to expect a bit more than before. And so kind of if you like what you've seen over the past four years, you're going to vote for him. If you don't, um, you're going to vote against him. But I think that third party idea is that there there was this idea of, oh, if I, you know, I don't want to choose between the two, I'm going to cast a ballot based on my convictions. You know, I can't, there was an idea of, I can't vote for a, a pro-choice president if, if I'm not mm. pro-choice. Um, and just really saying, if I vote for someone, I'm really going to agree with everything they do. And now there's a bit of a strategic um, calculus, I think, that evangelicals are making, uh, some evangelicals are making to say, um, actually, it's worth more to me to see the opponent, whether the opponent is um, Trump or Biden, um, lose the election that I actually would vote for somebody who who maybe um, goes against my convictions in one way or another. Hmm. You referenced that in that in 16, there was a lot of like, ah, the lesser of two evils. And I, right. I remember that talk being a lot. Uh, but it sounds like you're saying that right now people are more excited to vote for the candidate. Uh, is that what you're finding? And maybe what does your research say as to uh, is the level of excitement, say, to vote for President Trump higher in the evangelical world versus what it was in 16? Absolutely. So I was at a Evangelicals for Trump event. I live down in Georgia, and this event was um, outside of Atlanta um, two, three weeks ago. And one of the pastors who opened the event, I said, okay, what's the difference between how you're feeling now and how you're, how you're feeling then? And that was his quote to me was that... Um, I am excited to vote for this candidate. And I think that a lot of other pastors are that same way, that there isn't the holding your nose. Um, It really is an enthusiasm behind him. So I think his supporters are a lot more jazzed and confident Hmm. um, between uh, in order to vote for him. So I, I sense that. And I mean, I think that you'll find other people who aren't evangelicals, who are other demographics, that they that they have their own um, enthusiasm. I'm sure you've seen the flag waving, the flotillas. Um, he's got supporters um, that I'm not going to say evangelicals are the only ones, but I think that they support him in a different um, kind of way. And then they're they're willing to see like the ways that they believe God is using him in the White House, um, which is pretty powerful when they think or see. Um, 
him as someone who has welcomed prayer, even um, as recently as his COVID diagnosis, celebrating, oh, look at this pastor is inviting the nation to pray for him, um, that surely he must um, be open to God and God's movement. So I think they just frame it differently, not necessarily that they are um, his most enthusiastic fans. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I do want to ask you about the president and COVID in the next segment, but I'm curious. One of the things that Brian and I talk a lot about is how how do we engage faithfully online, you know, predominantly digital reality now for a lot of us. How, how do Christians engage in politics, and especially based on what you were just saying? If if it's true that you know both sides are all the more, I think the word you used was jazzed, like all the more amped, uh, that can also lead sometimes to a like a a digging into the heels more confirmation bias, more echo chambers. Like how, how can Christians faithfully engage in political discussions in between now maybe and, and the election? Do you have any ideas for how to do that uh, as a Christ follower in particular in a way that's still honoring to, to each other? I mean, that's the big question right now. I think that not only are, are us as everyday people curious about it, but I think pastors are wondering, is yeah. there a magic way to do this as they see kind of their congregations get mad if they do mention something, get mad if they don't mention something, you know, they're fielding just as many emails, whether they're preaching in person or preaching um, digitally and addressing kind of the topics that come up in the campaign. Yeah. I think that, um, People are compelled by the idea of the church being a place where, um, right, partisanship shouldn't determine your salvation, um, that they do think, you know, convictions can lead us in, in different ways and we can have discussions over that. But I think it's really hard to translate those ideas to what it looks like in practice living in community, um, given the the way this me this campaign has been hyped up where you really do feel like people who are on the other side are characterized as enemies as you know wanting death i think on on both ways that you see um the democratic party as being a party that opposes um abortion restrictions and therefore is right like um, responsible for the killing of unborn babies. And then on the other side, you see uh, Democrats saying, oh, Republicans have been too willy-nilly with um, COVID and they're to blame right. for all these COVID deaths. So it really does feel like a life and death thing to compromise on or to come together on. Um, so I get why why it's hard in reality as much as the church wants to and has the the right convictions around being a, a common ground place for, um, for believers. That's really helpful. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Kate Shelnut. She's the senior news editor of Christianity Today magazine. And uh, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit more about the president and COVID and some of what at least we saw as the evangelical response online has been fascinating, to say the least. We're going to have that conversation coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're joined again, though, by Kate Shelnut. She is the senior news editor of Christianity Today magazine, and we're talking a bit about politics, particularly an evangelical perspective on it, and something that I'm imagining uh, all of us are aware of. We actually discussed this in the first segment, but we're going to talk a little bit about President Trump and his COVID diagnosis and some of how the Internet responded. I, I think I posted something maybe on Friday or Saturday Trying to, in some ways, say, hey, it's regardless of how you feel about a person, 
wishing their death might not be the most Christian thing to do. And I caught a, a lot of heat for it. And I, I've heard some really, I think, compelling cases on both sides of this argument. I'd love to know wh- where do you land on this or how do we navigate? What are you seeing, Kate, in the uh, particularly social media landscape with regards to uh, Trump and Melania's uh, diagnosis this weekend? Right. So I was on Twitter when um, Trump tweeted really late on Thursday night and early Friday morning um, that he and Melania, the first lady, had been diagnosed with um, with the coronavirus. And of course, everyone was just like scrambling to process, to meme, to joke. But immediately I saw Christian leaders um, calling for prayer. Some of them are people who you would expect, um, including people who were with the president recently. Greg Laurie was the first pastor who I saw. And just today, um, he announced that the following day, he found out he was diagnosed um, mm-hmm. with coronavirus. Um, but there are people like like him who are supporters and prayer partners of the president. Um, but there have, were also people who had been kind of on the record as critics of, of the president who said, listen, now is not the time for us to play kind of political enemies. Like this is a, a man who's a leader and it's important that he be healthy um, and functioning and not hospitalized. And as Christians, we care about his life just as much as the um, other 200,000 lives um, that have been taken in our country by COVID. So it was a refreshing call to see um, both sides really speak up against um, politicizing uh, an an event that actually has to be political in some way, just given the timing, Um, but really a a pro-life call to to care about and pray for the president. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, and you wrote an article kind of about this, about evangelical Biden supporters. Um, Ian and I have done stories over the last couple of weeks of very prominent evangelical pastors saying you can't be a Democrat or vote for Biden and be a Christian. Some very strong language. Uh, I'm wondering the Biden supporters, Christian supporters that you talk to, what's it been like for them? What are they kind of telling you since they are the minority? Uh, what's it like to be an evangelical and a voter and a supporter of Joe Biden right now? I think that's the most interesting Venn diagram that we have right now um, because evangelicals are so likely to be in community with people who support President Trump. Just numerically, we talked about before that this is a group that has shown great support behind the Republican candidate and who has particular enthusiasm right now for for President Trump. Um, And to feel like, oh, my family members, my friends, not just like everyone has a mother, a grandmother, an uncle, a neighbor, but people who they consider among their close friends, people in their circle. Um, Pew Research has shown um, that they're more likely to have somebody who disagrees with them. And so on the one hand, it's practically awkward, right, to not have that common ground. But on the other hand, they worry um, that if they were to admit or really take a stand for Biden, um, their faith would be called into question, um, that they that they would have to start debating or defending how they could support the president while also holding to um, Christian values, particularly around abortion. Right. So so how do you encourage someone who's feeling some of this tension? You know, there's a, a piece that was just written by uh, Ron Sider and Richard Mao. Mm-hmm. We are pro-life evangelicals for Biden, right? There's people that have written about it extensively and thought about it extensively. I imagine, though, that there may be even people listening right now who are thinking, this is the first time that I've actually felt any real tension here. Uh, with regards to how I'm going to vote and the arguments that I'm hearing people make, like, 
Are there steps or things that you would encourage people to at least consider as they're trying to navigate some of these tensions between now and the election? I do think it was interesting to hear from the number of evangelicals for Biden across lifestyles, across um, places in the United States. You know, they're they're in the New York, New York City and the Pacific Northwest, but they're also in Florida and Ohio and Tennessee. Um, so the idea that they felt they all felt isolated kind of within their own congregations or within their own families, some saying they live in a house with with Trump supporters. And yet I put on a call on Twitter and here they go all replying to one another and saying, oh, that's my story too. Mm -hmm. There was a great sense of solidarity there. And I know that there are strategic reasons that people can't speak up. I think pastors do have to be careful um, how much they want their personal politics, right, to be um, in front of the congregation all the time, um, or people who want to maintain certain relationships. But I do think there's a benefit to knowing that you're not alone and that you can process and think thoughtfully um, about where you fall, even if it's it's not where you see your leaders or the rest mm-hmm. of the people around you. Um, and it helps give you some, some language and wording. I heard um, both Ron Sider and um, fellow Christian leaders speak at an evangelical for Biden virtual event. And I mean, they're talking, they're calling on scripture, they're evoking prayer, that these are not people who, um, who take the word of God lightly, um, but are able to kind of hold a both and position. And I think that's comforting to know that, right, God's not limited by party or party platform, which can seem relatively arbitrary. Um, but, but people are allowed to, to vote on their convictions wherever they fall. So I'm wondering, in 2016, uh, one of the big stories after the election was that people didn't admit, say, that they were going to vote for President Trump, but then did. It was kind of that whole silent majority. Do you think there's a chance that could happen in the reverse this time? Kind of what you're saying, people don't feel free to say, evangelicals, I should say, don't feel free to say, I'm going to vote for Biden. Do you think there's a chance or do you think we have a pretty good grasp on the numbers right now? I guess there's always a chance of, I mean, when you ask a survey of of Uh, What does the survey not tell us? And that'll always be a bit of a hindsight. I will say people in the silent majority on the Trump side have spoken out specifically against that and have used it as a call for Trump voters to be more vocal this year. So we do see some movement there. As far as Biden uh, voters among evangelicals, I think it's going to be... we're going to continue to see most of them among non-white voters, right? Like a majority of of black evangelicals um, and other non-white evangelical groups are siding with Biden. Um, that that's where we see the most there. I do think that this number, although they are more vocal for the first time, you know, some of them voting for Biden for the first time or deciding to vote uh, for him instead of third party. Um, are speaking out more, but still represent a pretty small number. I don't think we're going to see a dramatic swing among evangelicals um, this year. Kate, I was telling you off air, actually, that uh, we reference your stuff a lot, and I'm super grateful for your voice and your writing. We, we are consistently utilizing the research that you're doing and incorporating into the show. And a number of people have told us that it's really, really helpful. I'd love for you to take a second, just let people know where they can find you, whether Twitter or email, any websites, any information. I'd love for people to know how to get a hold of you. Absolutely. So I hope that your 
uh, following ChristianityToday.com. Um, Christianity Today slash news is where we have news stories and updates. Um, I'm on Twitter at Kate Shelnut. Um, my DMs are open. So if you want to share with me your uh, political arc or story, if you want to give me a tip on news that's going on, that's a good way um, to reach me right away. Um, and you can also subscribe to CTN Print at orderct.com. That is fantastic. Kate Shelnut is the senior news editor of Christianity Today. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. This article that I found is from Atlantic. It says, America is trapped in a pandemic spiral As the U.S. heads towards the winter, the country is going round in circles, making the same conceptual errors that have plagued it since spring. That, to me, is uh, a little despondent sounding. Mm -hmm. So I I considered not doing this story at all just because I felt like, well, that's a bit of a downer. But it has been something that I've been ruminating on a lot. Like, do we are we just repeating the same? And I don't think this is happening globally, necessarily. It's been interesting to, to really try to observe how is the United States handling all this? And is there something that we can do to break out of some of these cycles we seem to kind of perpetually be caught in? So I'll let Brian Frum get us into it. It is a, a long read, but fret not, Brian, there is a list. So that'll uh, uh, yes. that'll, <laughs> that'll help us get through it a little bit. But uh, what's the what's the overall gist? Yeah, it's it. I'll start in the second paragraph here. It says the U.S. enters. This was written in September. So uh, it says at that point, the U.S. enters the ninth month of the pandemic with more than six point three million confirmed cases and more than one hundred and eighty nine confirmed deaths. I believe now we're up to two hundred and ten thousand. The toll has been enormous. Uh, because the country presented the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus with a smorgasbord of vulnerabilities to exploit. But the toll continues to be enormous because the country has consistently thought about the pandemic in the same unproductive ways. Hmm. Many Americans trusted intuition to help guide them through this disaster. They grabbed onto whatever solution was most prominent in the moment and bounced from one often false hope to the next. They saw the actions that individual people were taking and blamed and shamed their neighbors. They lapsed into magical thinking and believed that the world would return to normal within months. Following these impulses was simpler than navigating a web of solutions, staring down broken systems and accepting that the pandemic would rage for at least a year. And so I'll stop there. Uh, I, you, you and I have talked about this often again, uh, this idea of, um, and, and the media has perpetuated this some, even the CDC, but a lot of us just as individuals who want this to be over have said, well, if we do that, then it's done. Or, oh, you know, wear masks and you go back to normal or do this. And there's been this lack of unity as to how we are going to attack this. And so I do think this um, this picture of a spiral is really good because I was having this talk with a family member of mine, a brother-in-law of mine the other day. Like we were talking about this and I just said the hardest part for me right now is uh, seeing how this ever ends. Like how does this ever it's always been this magic vaccine. But in reality, how does this ever end And that's that picture of the spiral that it's just going in circles and we're kind of grasping at new things. Uh, And so that is that that question of how does this ever end? Does this ever end? I think is the one that kind of weighs on me. And it's kind of what this article is getting at. Yeah, I, I like how this paragraph begins. It says the spiral begins when people forget that controlling the pandemic means doing many things at once. The virus can spread before symptoms appear, as we all know, and does so most easily through five P's. And here's what they are. People in prolonged 
poorly ventilated, protection-free proximity. So this notion of doing many things at once, I think, is part of what the author is getting at. Like, well, we've kind of tried these multiple silver bullet solutions, and then when that didn't work, or somebody said something else on a different blog or a different website, we course correct and we do something else. And uh, I think that's part of what I think that's part of why the spiral is a helpful analogy because the whole kind of premise of the article is our intuition maybe hasn't been great, right. and we continue to depend on this intuition that is kind of responsible for getting us to where we're at now. And maybe people would disagree with that. I, I, uh, I could be way wrong on that, but it, it is interesting to see even how different, different parts of the country have been responding and even how difficult it is to nail down numbers. You remember at the very beginning of this, it was like there were really, really closed down States and really, really open States, Mm -hmm. but the numbers didn't go up at the same rate in all of the open States or down in the closed States. Like it wasn't, it wasn't clear enough to enough people like, well, this is obviously what needs to be done or should be done. Like, and I think that's part of what perpetuated this spiral a little bit because n- nothing seemed nothing seemed to be a silver bullet type of solution like people were wanting. Not only that, but uh, just how this thing spreads is not, has not been uniform, right? Like the New England Patriots, they're playing tonight. Uh, as long as they pass all their tests, Cam Newton, their star quarterback, tested positive, but nobody else on the team did, even though he's in all the meetings and doing this. Right. But then you take like the Rose Garden event last Saturday, two Saturdays ago for Amy Coney Barrett. And a lot of people believe that that was a super spreader event where it just kind of went crazy. And you're like, well, why hasn't it super spread here, but it super spreads there? And what does that mean? It's just wild. And so this Atlantic article begins to uh, kind of point out the ways that we have engaged as opposed to saying, let's take this from a multifaceted, as you said, um, look. Instead, it said we've con- we've engaged it in this way. So the number one on this list, it says, is a serial monogamy of solutions. Uh, it's a stay-at-home orders dominated March. Masks were debated in April. Contact tracing took its turn in May. Ventilation is having its moment now. Uh, President Trump touted hydrochloroquine. Uh, there's been other studies about convalescent plasma and all this, this, this idea now remdesivir, which the president has been taking this weekend, uh, this idea that we, there's kind of a shotgun model, like let's try this one. Let's try this one. Let's try this one. As opposed to here's the things that, that are going to get us out of this They're kind of underlying. This is just a lack of unity, a lack of, uh, of a plan and uh, this kind of shotgun approach to solutions. This author is saying has really plagued us from the beginning. Yeah, there's a couple of other options this author gives. And the second one is uh, false dichotomies. It says a world of black and white is easier to handle than one awash with grays. But false dichotomies are dangerous. From the start, COVID-19 has been portrayed as a disease that mostly causes mild symptoms in people who quickly recover and occasionally causes severe illness that leads to hospitalization and death. This two-sided caricature, severe or mild, sick or recovered, has erased the thousands of long haulers who have endured months of debilitating symptoms at home with neither recognition nor care, which is, again, a theme that we've talked about on the show a lot. Like there's there there tends to be almost an, an attraction to the, the most dramatic stories, right? Like the things that are headline worthy, which is maybe a symptom of a, of a deeper underlying issues. We don't we almost don't even have like the attention span for the gray yes. area, the the in-between stuff, which, you know, coupled with something like what we're going through can can be a bit of a problem. Yeah. And number three, and I'm going to skip this one, but it's called the comfort of theatric theatricality. 
but then number four goes personal blame over systemic fixes. And this one I find really interesting that rather than going, how does COVID spread kind of system wide or in a big way, whether it be prisons and nursing homes or in lower income areas, it's all been about what do I do? Um, like, hey, I'm washing my hands. Hey, I'm, uh, you know, I wear a mask. Uh, and those are important, but but this author is trying to say, hey, there needs to be a time where we say, uh, what are the systems in place? What's the bigger model right now or the bigger idea as to why this spread so that we can cut it off in even a grander scale as opposed to just how do I not get sick myself? Yeah, and there, there's a couple of other categories here, this desire for normalcy. One of them's about, you know, maybe maybe more magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Either way, there's there's a lot of food for thought here. And uh we would love to know what you guys think, especially um as as we're facing new challenges every day and trying to figure out how do we disagree in a way that still honors each other. Uh, at what point do you say like, hey, uh safety needs to be more important than honor? I've heard a lot of people say things like that. I would just be curious to know how people are responding themselves and what do you think of this article and maybe even what are some ways forward. This is over on our Facebook page. The Common Good Radio Show. And with that, uh, the first hour is in the books. But coming up in the second hour, we're going to talk a little bit about Pope Francis and the death penalty. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Pope Francis and the death penalty, how to live a fulfilled life, and then how to actually make friends as an adult. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. If you're wondering why I said back, because you're just joining us via radio right now, well, then you should go back and listen to the podcast. We had a wonderful conversation with Kate Shellnut. She's always wonderfully insightful. We should just have her back every week because I feel like mm-hmm. the insight and wisdom that she brings is always so spot on. But that is available at the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. While you're there, if you wouldn't mind writing a little review, giving you a little rating, a subscription, and then maybe send to a friend. All of that does help us out a whole bunch. And uh, super grateful for all of you who have done that already. We want to talk a little bit about Pope Francis who's I'm seeing a lot of people sharing this article in particular, the one out of uh, the uh, out of America, the Jesuit review. And he has made some statements regarding the death penalty. This is a conversation Brian and I have covered maybe just a couple of times in the last year and a half, maybe a few more than that. We had Shane Claiborne on talking about uh, a book that he had written in this regard, but I don't know that we've taken a, a real deep dive on this topic. And I'm I'm interested in diving into this story a little bit because I, I think this is a really, really important conversation. But why don't why don't you give us the gist first? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting conversation, not just the policy of the death penalty, but but what it means for Catholics and Catholic teaching here and what the pope has done. So uh, it says uh, Pope Francis new uh, encyclical called Fratelli Tutti does something that some Catholics believe could not be done. It ratifies a change in church in church teaching in this case on the death penalty. In 2018, Pope Francis ordered a change in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the official uh, commendium of church teaching, when he termed the death penalty, quote, inadmissible. Today, the Pope placed the full weight of his teaching authority behind this statement. The death penalty is inadmissible and Catholics should work for its abolition. A papal encyclical is one of the highest of all documents in terms of its authority, removing any lingering doubt about the church's belief. 
He said there can be no stepping back from this position, says Francis, uh, referring to the opposition to capital punishment expressed by St. John Paul II. Today, we state clearly that the death penalty is inadmissible and the church is firmly committed to calling for its abolition worldwide. And so this kind of sent shockwaves, if you will, through uh, through the world, but also through the Catholic Church right now, because the Pope is saying, no, no, we're going to raise the bar right now for all Catholics that the teaching of the church is not just that the death penalty is inadmissible, but now all Catholics and all Catholic churches, um, by teaching of the Pope, say uh, we need to work for its abolition around the world. So that includes obviously in the United States, but worldwide. And he's going to go on later to say that. But Manny, and that's that is a strong statement made by a Pope who's always been against the death penalty in his teachings. But the weight of what he says and, and what it means for Catholics around the world really can't be understated. Yeah, it's a big deal. And uh, Helen Prigian, I think is how you say it, author of Dead Man Walking, who's been a, a longtime opponent of capital punishment. And I didn't realize this till reading this article. Uh, her work actually helped to alter the catechism. She she praised the actions of the Pope and, and said this, I rejoice in Pope Francis's ringing proclamation of the inviolable dignity of all human life, even the life of murderers. And I'm heartened by the church's unequivocal opposition to government's use of the death penalty in all instances in killing chambers. I've seen close up the torture and suffering of human beings rendered defenseless and killed by the state, their lives stripped of all dignity. I rejoice now that this clarity of church teaching will help end this unspeakable suffering and spark the gospel of Jesus to be lived in its fullness, restoration of human life, not humiliation, torture, and execution. This is something that I imagine there'll be people listening that completely disagree with. Do you want to play devil's advocate for a second, Brian? Like, What might be the opposition, I guess, uh, from a let's, – let's, let's keep it Christian – from a, okay. a, a Christian opposition to this move? Yeah, and I will play devil's advocate. I want to state from the outset that I am uh, – I fully endorse what the Pope says here. I am very anti-death penalty. But uh, because you asked me to play the other side, I will willingly do so. Uh, <laughs> I think you can you can oppose this from a couple different ways. Well, uh, I see when I read the Old Testament, I see uh, there being the death penalty, if you will, in the Old Testament. But more than that, while I might be opposed to individuals taking the lives of other individuals for a state or a nation to do so uh, is a way uh, to take crime, to keep crime down or to show people that there's consequences for your actions. And it allows us to keep law and order within our nation state. So, yeah, we might be against, uh, you know, you taking the life of another person. Uh, but when it comes to the state, they have to have that in their in their toolbox, if you will, uh, in order to keep law and order, to show people that there are consequences for those who break the law in the most grievous of ways. Uh, and therefore, uh, I think those are two ways to go. Well, God, God doesn't, you know, I see it in the Old Testament, especially. And then you go to sure. what it means for a nation. I think that's the opposition to that is my guess. And I didn't realize that like Augustine and Aquinas, like both saw it as lawful, like. Yeah. The article here says for the sake of punishment, but also as a way for the state to protect itself. So that's honestly kind of news to me. Maybe it's not news to anyone else listening, but I I'd be curious to know. As an evangelical, does this shift or solidify anything for you? I know that sometimes, you know, there there can be a sort of distancing from Protestants and what happens over like in Catholic world, you know, 
And another time it's like, oh, gosh, that's uh, that's happening there. That that has uh, effects in my life as well. Does this functionally affect you at all? Uh, well, when I read it today, I, I it doesn't functionally affect me in the way of me going, well, the Pope said it. Now I have to, you know, I have to follow it. But what it does is he's a scholar in many ways, and he does great work here on why they should be um, not just opposed, but looking to abolish the death penalty. And so I think even if you're a Protestant who doesn't obviously fall under the umbrella of the Pope, uh, you could still read this as as reading even a a godly person and a scholar and their writing. Like he goes on, he grounds the opposition. It says here to capital punishment, not only in mercy, uh, but in revenge, he says fear and resentment can easily lead to viewing punishment in a vindictive and even cruel way rather than as part of a process of healing and reintegration into society. And so I think as evangelical, as Christians, as Christ followers, we all need to wrestle with um, what is, a couple things, right? We all know that innocent people have been put to death. And so if that's even on the table, how can that make the death penalty okay? But then also, what do we believe uh, is ultimately the hope when it comes to um, somebody being transformed and somebody changing over time, uh, even if they're never going to go back into society, even if they're going to be in prison for their whole lives? What do we believe people can be reformed and changed uh, over time, specifically through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that's where I land. What What are your thoughts on uh, just the death penalty in general and what the Pope had to say here, though? Well, I, I didn't realize either till reading this that he also condemned life imprisonment, calling it a, a secret death penalty. Really? So, yeah, like this is this is this is a you big deal there. Yeah. yeah and I, you and I, I think, have been fairly outspoken on this topic. I uh, I am not for the death penalty either. And I've had a hard time even uh, I guess doing what you did well earlier and playing devil's advocate it, that would that one this is this is a really tricky one for me to even make a a Christian case in favor of to be totally to be totally honest uh, that that one's that one's really really tough for me but I, I think at the very least and I like how this uh, article actually ends quoting Sister Pergine again. Uh, she said, devotional assent is not enough unless we heed the Holy Father's commitment to work for abolition of the death penalty. His words, however inspiring, will remain just that. Words on a page, stillborn, an annunciation, but no in, uh, incarnation. In us, may these words live. And I think that's just a good, that's a good call in general, not just around this topic, but that phrase that's kind of ringing in my ears right now, devotional ascent is not enough. That's something that I felt mm. convicted more and more, especially in this like hyper digital reality. Man, like tweeting something is not activism, <laughs> like holding a position, standing your ground. Those are all good things, but it, it still requires action. And in this particular case, a commitment to work for the abolition of the death penalty is something that I think is really important, but also something that I know our audience may be divided on. And I, I really do mean it. We would love to know what you think. Are you for this? Are you against this? Is this something that kind of boils your blood or are you thinking, man, it's, it's about time? You can do all of that on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We would love to hear from you. Uh, coming up next, a little bit of a lighter note, but certainly something that I hear a lot, especially among young adults, how to make friends as an adult. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. Happy National Consignment Day, by the way, Brian. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
It's my awesome. wife loves. My wife has sold many of things at consignment shops. I'm always very impressed how she like gets it all in order and takes it. She's actually worked at consignment shops, so wow. I'm gonna have to uh, remind tell her that it's the holiday today. Way to go! It's also National Apple Betty Day. What is Apple Betty? Not the foggiest. No clue. Okay, I good. No. It could be a dance. It could be a dessert. It could be. I have to honestly it do it. I might get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think they put those types of holidays here on this. Very nicely curated list. Uh, okay, so the, here's a topic out of Psych that I, I've actually talked about a number of times. We actually had Val Fisk on last week, and she was talking about this as well. Uh, this this notion of friendships, and and again, maybe for the Christ follower, I would frame it as, as like spiritual friendships, I, I think is something that's really important, but often tough to get to any kind of solution. I, I hear a lot of young adults in particular say, you know, in high school and college, I had like groups and cliques and like clubs that you could join in order to meet people. And then somewhere in your mid twenties, you realize, wait, how do I, I don't know how to make friends anymore. Like that yeah. can be a very strange encounter. I know once you have kids, often you just sort of become friends with your kids friends and that can be, you know, sort of a, a bridge for you. But I, I found this article to be interesting and also really practical. It's organized in a really interesting way, but, uh, before we kind of dive into this, Brian, I'm wondering, do you, do you struggle at all in this area? Or is like being a pastor sort of helped you in that regard? Oh, that's a great question. So let me just really quickly tell you, the Apple Betty looks phenomenal. <laughs> cool, man. Uh, but I would say this, man, I think being a pastor makes friendship harder in some ways. Um, I don't think it makes acquaintances harder, but it makes friendship harder. So what, why is that? Because I there is... I have always struggled as a pastor uh, wanting there to be no difference between me and the other people in the church and just realizing that that's a two-way street, that oftentimes people will say things like they will still refer to you as pastor. There'll still be this difference. If they leave your church, they kind of leave you sometimes. Not always. I've got some great friends in my church, but I think I always thought when I became a pastor, my whole church would be like great friends of mine. And it's just not the case. I think it's just the office. You could see me going, quote, unquote, the office of the pastor, I think, is a separator for a lot of people, I think. Um, and so I've at least found that. I also think like when you're in college, you're living with people, right? You're on a dorm floor. It's like uh, friendships happen just so organically because you're literally spending so much time with one another. Uh, my life was a little different because right out of college, I got married and marriage kind of changes it. Uh, friendship stuff. But uh, I would say my, I'm at an age right now, cards on the table, where this is certainly an issue because, like you said, you, you so much of your life is invested not just in your job but in your kids' activities that you spend so much time around, like you said, the parents of the friends of them right. who you might not have that much in common with, that there's just not all that much space. You, uh, I should put it this way. You got to work really hard hmm. to find the space. And I think you're probably learning this now too with little <laughs> kids because it's the same thing. Yes. Uh, whereas before you had kids, there was more space there. Uh, my wife and I were just talking about that the other day. Like just where's the space to go hang out with people and just uh, build those relationships over time. Like it might be a one-time dinner or this and that, but the ability to build long-term friendships, we certainly have those friendships, but they're difficult to start. They're difficult to maintain. Uh, and so I think I, I totally resonate with this. I think making making friends, not just when you're just out of college, but also as you get older, as an adult, I think is really difficult. It's certainly an issue. Well, and the article goes on to talk about like moving from acquaintance into real friendship. Yeah. They encourage us to start practicing vulnerability, which again, just as a 
as a soundbite is like way easier said than done. Like, oh, yeah, be vulnerable. Like, that's the most frightening thing for like most adult people to do is like to just be. It's hard for people to be vulnerable with people they've been friends with for 10 years, let alone someone that they're like trying to build a friendship with, which kind of leads to one of their other points. Like, hey, assume people like you, which, again, is easier said than done. That can be a really difficult thing, I think, for people to go into a situation where they don't know anybody with with that kind of assumption. And I think I think part of what a digital reality, a social media reality has done for a lot of us is that we've we've confused like friendship for network, you know, like because I oh I'm connected on Facebook. I mean we even call it a friend on Facebook, right? They've they've almost kind of co-opted that word in a way that I imagine 40, 50 years from now we'll be reading about how it like reframed even the definition of friend, friendship because on, on Facebook. And again, I'm not knocking Facebook because I think it's easy to sort of knock all social media and say, that's the devil. And that's the reason the world's so divided and we're so isolated. I think it's probably a contributing factor to be honest. But when we, when we even subtly think that a friendship is simply being connected on social media, I, I think it's easy for us to start to diminish what a, what a friendship actually can look like. And therefore we just get more and more, out of practice, I think. And that's part of what is why this conversation I think is so important. And I'm realizing, I mean, there's all sorts of suggestions here. They say, find an event, you know, prepare yourself to interact, open up conversation with a stranger, exchange contact information, follow up. That's a really big one. It says, make sure to follow up with the person you met by checking in over text or social media, see how they're doing. Then follow up again to see if they'd be open to meeting up sometime. You can say something like, Hey, did you want to get some tea before our next book club event? Which I imagine would be frightening for someone to have to follow up. I mean, m- making friends as an adult sometimes feels like trying to date in junior high. You know, like, yeah. what, if they, what if they don't like me? What if they reject me? It's amazing how <laughs> in your 30s and 40s, you can still feel the weight of the fear of rejection. And maybe not everyone, you know, there's probably people watching or listening that are thinking, oh, yeah, I don't live by that fear at all. If they don't like me, they don't like me. And I, I move on. But I feel like a lot of us probably live with some level of fear. I just think be, making friends takes time. Like it's really a a basic thing here, but a lot of us don't have time. And so it be, now it's going to yeah. take some real intentionality. Like even their stuff here, uh, you know, Pippa does uh, not agree. <laughs> Pippa's making friends right now out the window. <laughs> uh, like even now, I, if I could just describe to you how far away I am from my dog right now, and it's still that loud. Um, <laughs> It takes just such intentionality, right? Like even their their list here of like go to an event, follow up. Like we like to think that friendships just organically happen. Again, like in college, some of my best friends in college, how did we become best friends? I don't know. We lived next door to each other the whole freshman year. Right, and then right. therefore we played lots of video games together and all of a sudden we're hanging out, you know? And, and it just doesn't happen that way. And then when your kids get older, I do all I can to find a, de- a night to go on a date with my wife and to do fun stuff with my children. And, and, and then that leaves just this ability to make French uh, like outside of that, that circle really difficult, but yet we know how important it is. And that's why so many people end up lonely. And uh, I, and so I'm struck by the intentionality uh, that this takes and that many of us probably still live in a world like, I don't know, I'll just run into somebody and we'll click and we'll be buddies, you know, and it yeah. just doesn't happen that way, especially as you get older. Well, and I think it's like a lot of things. I think we can know that it's really important and still not prioritize it. Like we know Agreed. exercise is important for us. We don't need to read one more blog to convince us that it's important. We know it. Uh, whether or not we actually prioritize it is something else entirely, right? And I think we can know that friendships 
in the long haul and short term, especially during a pandemic, are really, really important. But like, can you describe for me, Brian, how good it feels when someone cancels plans on you? <laughs> am I am I am I sharing too much? It's isn't really that nice. isn't that at times just like a <laughs> oh wonderful? Gosh. And obviously, that's, I don't want everyone listening to anything like, "Wow, does he not want to hang out with anybody?" You're like, "That's that not so true. true." But sometimes it's like, "Oh, I got a free night. Oh, great. Okay, wonderful." If it's in the evening, if it's in the evening, and it's especially like a meeting, but like you said, even just like a meetup of some sort, and it cancels, and you're like, "I could put on my sweatpants and watch TV, watch a game <laughs> or something, or just hang out with my family." Right? Uh, it's awesome, and and. That does play into this. There's no doubt about that for sure. And real quick here before we wrap up, uh, you're not wrong. Apple Betty looks delicious. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> we should, we I want should. some now. <laughs> I, I, kinda, I, that, I just was done talking about exercise and I'm like looking up pictures of Apple Betty. That was a terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> all right. So coming up next article out of Christianity Today, why we get up in the morning shouldn't differ from Sunday to Monday. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Your life. And friends are friends forever If the Lord's the Lord of them Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good on this lovely National Rhode Island Day. I know you're a big Rhode Island fan, Brian, so I, huge, I assume you have big, big plans. Some Apple Betty. Yes. <laughs> that's pretty nice. Well, that's perfect because it's also National Do Something Nice Day. So if anyone would like to deliver either of us an Apple Betty on this National Rhode Island Day, I would not turn it down. I have to make sure my wife knows it's Do Something Nice Day. So <laughs> what, what is that comment supposed to mean? <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, just kidding. Jeez, I'm going to send her just this clip. Make sure that she <laughs> has access to your commentary. Uh, all right. So. This is the actual Charlie Peacock we discovered during the break. He is a, a songwriter and artist that many of you are familiar with. He is reviewing a book by Stephen Garber called The Seamless Life. But I, I liked the headline and I liked I liked some of the commentary. The, the headline was why we get up in the morning shouldn't differ from Sunday to Monday. What is going on here? Yeah, Charlie Peacock, he writes in late 2014. I began uh, consulting with the College of Entertainment and the Arts at Lipsicum uh, University in Nashville. The college's dean was considering adding a commercial music program. He was curious to know how I'd sustained meaningful work, artistry, and commercial success in the music business for over four decades. Wow. If we wanted to replicate a musician like you in a degree, a degree program, he asked, what would the curriculum look like? I was curious, too. How had I been able to survive in, and often thrive in an industry that favors the young? Uh, requires repeated commercial success and has an attrition rate like no other. Uh, in short, if you're 58 years old and you've had a, a number one billboard hit, you have beaten astronomical odds. So could I create a curriculum along similar paths? So he says, I set out to aggregate and analyze my musical life, my vocation from birth to present. I was privileged to exercise. I, it was a privileged exercise with the help of two real academics. All my discoveries were shaped into a four year bachelor of arts degree. That's pretty cool. Uh, I'd founded a commercial music program. The course closest to my passion was a freshman seminar, Identity and Artistry. Before any music got made, I wanted my students to know two things, that the art of music is rooted in their identity and that the kind of people they become while creating is just as important as the music they create. Identity and artistry, I would say, are meant to be seamlessly 
integrated. So as a part of the course, students would choose a second subject of interest unrelated to music, organic farming, cycling, or fashion. Ambitiously, I tried to teach the students to tease out the creative connections between their music and their secondary interests. The artful life, I would tell them, is first and always a way of seeing. That's fascinating. That co- that Just that line about identity and artistry. I think you and I, we talk on the show all the time about how everything flows out of our identity in Christ and an mm. understanding. Uh, and so even Charlie Peacock there is saying your music has to flow out of that. Basically, you know, people are going to know if you're singing something that you feel deeply or it's coming from a deep place. And that's going to get him off into this book about the seamless life. Uh, but man, that is a huge issue. One that I'm guessing this book is going to tackle that, uh, that, that, there needs to be this consistency in our lives that flows from our identity and, and where we find our identity. And as Christ followers, we find our identity as in who we are in Jesus. So so Garber is essentially uh, a professor of marketplace theology at Regent, which is wow. awesome. I love that that's like an actual field of study. I think that's fascinating. It says, for decades, he has sought to understand why Christians who have Jesus in common live such puzzlingly different and often contradictory lives. If we all follow Jesus, shouldn't our values, cares, and commitments have a great deal more in common? I imagine this could also maybe apply to our politics, to our finances, to our social media philosophies, to our, our recreation. Yusan says, after all, the divisions in Christ's body can run deeper than nuances of opinion, lifestyle preferences, or doctrinal scuffles. Too often, Christians especially are seeing entirely different realities. This phenomenon leads to dramatically different conclusions about the meaning of life and what it means to follow Jesus, caring for the people and planet he loves. So that is a great premise because I we've kind of talked about that topic in a number of different ways. Like, if Jesus is in common... Why? I mean, even think about earlier in the show, we talk about death penalty. Why are Christians so divided on death penalty? Why are Christians so divided, you know, on politics and policy? Are we actually as divided as it seems? Is there something else going on there? Like, I, I think that is a super compelling premise and something, especially like in the workplace, that is is probably not talked about enough. And yeah. I wonder if you think part of that is because. Like a lot of pastors have, you know, been pastors most of their adult life. They've never really had to even maybe see their work as worship because they're like, well, I already work at the church. So like, that's not an area of struggle for me. But I, how would you answer the question? Like, why do people who have Jesus in common seem to live such different lives? I, I think for, for many of us who, especially those of us who grew up as Christians, grew up in the church, like I think about my own life, like, uh, Church was just part of my life, but it wasn't the, my relationship with Jesus wasn't always the umbrella under which everything else fell. Right. And, right. uh, I think that's still the case for a lot of us. That's why this article is, is making the differentiation between how you wake up on Sunday and Monday needs to be the same thing, be the same person. Because I think we live this separated life. I've got my church life, my Jesus life. I've got my work life. I've got my family life. And often they don't go together. He says here, the beating heart behind Garber's quote, seamless life ideal is a truth that bears repeating. Christians aren't meant to be divided in their mission and motivations. Uh, they're not to have this bifurcated life, one divided between Christian cares and the commitments on one side and those of everyday life on the other. We talk, we've talked about this before. Like we are called to be Christians <laughs> just as Christian on uh, Monday through Saturday as we are right. on Sunday. And I, and I think that's where so many of us get off and the, uh, we kind of go off in a different way because 
we we live this bifurcated life if we're really honest with ourselves. But I do think that if if we didn't live this kind of life, I do think there'd probably be a lot more unity and less division. There'd still be disagreements, uh, but there'd be less disunity and less division that mm-hmm. we probably see in our churches and kind of in our culture as a whole. Well, and I think too, there's some there's some work that needs to be done because I think often when people I think for the average churchgoer, for them to hear, probably especially from a pastor, like, hey, the rest of your week should look as devoted as your Sunday does, that feels like more of a weight than an invitation, right? That feels crushing, like, oh, gosh, you're saying I need to be even more diligent with reading my Bible? Am I supposed to tithe every day? Am I supposed to be singing with my hands raised? Like, what, is, what, do you, what do you mean by that, pastor? I think in a lot of ways, we've done a disservice uh, in pointing people only to a Sunday morning experience to talk about like an integrated faith an integrated life. What does it mean to live holistically on mission? Doesn't necessarily mean you need to add 17 more meetings and 14 more small groups right. to your schedule. It's, it's much more about living with a different vision. Like every interaction with every barista and bartender and waiter, like that's all an opportunity to live on mission together to, to make the grace of an invisible God visible through how we care for our family, through how we choose Sabbath rhythms and pay attention to what's going on, like in our soul. Like those are things that I think we'll be surprised to find out actually lead to a much richer walk with Jesus. But so often I think we lose people and we say, Hey, you should, you should be as diligent Tuesday as you are Sunday. A lot of people just hear that. Like, cause like, listen, man, my schedule's already pretty packed. I can't, I can't, you know what I mean? Like I can't add more things to it. And I think we, uh, and I think we I think we sell that life short a little bit, don't you think? I agree. I agree. I think we do. And that becomes the struggle because uh, it is the better. It, it is that, like you said, it's the deeper Christian life. It is the deeper understanding. And, and that's why there's a lot of great work going on about what's the missional church look like or what's it mean, I should say, to live on mission. Uh, but I do think it will always be the struggle, especially in a place like ours in the West, where uh, that, you know, we're not, we're not, our faith isn't costing us anything. And so therefore it becomes easy to just kind of make it a part of our lives. It will always be a struggle. And uh, I do find this article really helpful, a good reminder. I think I want to pick up this book because the idea of our faith and our, all of our lives being under that umbrella, I think is so important for us. Let's have him on the show. Let's make it happen. Yeah, we got awesome. a radio show, man. Do you know that? Let's do it. Let's do we it. We have guests. <laughs> all right. Well, sort of, sort of in line with that. That's, I was trying to, uh, in the in, under the theme of seamless, I was trying to create some kind of transition here. The uh, the headline coming up next is Oliver Berkman's last column, "The Eight Secrets to a Fairly Fulfilled Life." That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good on this happy National Apple Betty consignment. Do something nice, Rhode Island, and get funky day. No, That's, really? Uh, National Get Funky Day is today, October 5th. That's that's interesting. I call that Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's always getting funky on Mondays. Don't, yes, you don't, know me. Don't, yeah, I know you. There's one thing I know about Brian Fromm. That guy cannot stop getting funky. That's for sure. It's like a that's right. <laughs> All right. So uh, I wanted to tackle this article, and I know that sometimes we don't. it's not like a lot of people, but every once in a while someone will like drop into the middle of a show and they're like, Ugh, it sounded like what you were reading wasn't from a Christian source. And you're like, yeah, that's that is gonna happen uh, from the time. So this author, um, as best I can tell, I don't see anything you know in his bio that uh, alludes to it specifically. He's a journalist, 
and uh, has been writing, I guess, for a while, but wrote his last column. And it's Oliver Berkman's last column, The Eight Secrets to a Fairly Fulfilled Life. One of the reasons I like tackling articles like this or topics like this is because my guess is Brian and I will agree to some of it. But because of, you know, our faith background or tradition, there'll be other parts where we'll go, yeah, sort of, but I would add this or I would maybe tweak that. And I think that's a pretty interesting way to kind of come at some of these lists because, you know, a lot of these lists tend to read and sound pretty similarly. But I actually found this list to be fairly intriguing. So I'll, I'll skip sort of the, uh, the introductory stuff. You want to want to dive us into number one? Yeah, he says, uh, there will always be too much to do, and this realization is liberating. He says, today more than ever, there's just no reason to assume any fit between the demands on your time, all the things you'd like to do or feel like you ought to do, and the amount of time available. Thanks to capitalism, technology, and human ambition, these demands keep increasing while your capacities remain largely fixed. It follows that the attempt to, quote, get on top of everything is doomed. The upside is that you needn't berate yourself for failing to do it all since doing it all is structurally impossible. So that's an interesting take. Usually we feel really guilty that, oh, I can't get everything done. There's too much to do. But he said, realizing that is is actually liberating. Well, and this is one of those areas where I would add, like, that's why Sabbath rest is so important, right? It's it's saying, yeah, there there is still more to do, but it's my Sabbath and it's time to stop. And I think that's deeply biblical. Uh, Secondly, when stumped by a life choice, Choose enlargement over happiness. I'm indebted to the Jungian therapist James Hollis for the insight that major personal decisions should be made not by asking, will this make me happy, but will this choice enlarge me or diminish me? We're terrible at predicting what will make us happy. The question swiftly gets bogged down in our narrow preferences for security and control, but the enlargement question elicits a deeper, intuitive response. You tend to just know whether, say, leaving or remaining in a relationship or a job, though it might bring short-term comfort, would mean cheating yourself of growth. Relatedly, don't worry about burning bridges. Irreversible, uh, irreversible decisions tend to be more satisfying because now there's only one direction to travel forward into whatever choice you made. So I would, again, maybe add to this, maybe a question if I were to reframe it. I'd ask something like, does this decision uh, lead me to greater or less trust in God or something, something like that, that, that for me is a, is a helpful way of framing some of those decisions. Mm. Would, would I trust God more or less with this decision? Yeah. And what's interesting, I, I, you might've said this at the beginning, but this guy, he's writing his last column, not retiring. He's like 45 years old. He just is, yeah, feels like it's time to be done. So the next one says the capacity to tolerate minor discomfort is a superpower. It's shocking to realize how readily we set aside even our greatest ambitions in life merely to avoid easily tolerable levels of unpleasantness. <laughs> yeah. You already know it won't kill you to endure the mild agitation of getting back to work on an important creative project, initiating a difficult conversation with a colleague, asking someone out or checking your bank balance. But you can waste years in avoidance nonetheless. It's possible instead to make a game of gradually increasing your capacity for discomfort, like weight training at the gym. When you expect that an action will be accompanied by feelings of irritability, anxiety, or boredom, it's usually possible to let that feeling arise and fade while doing the action anyway. The rewards come so quickly in terms of what you'll accomplish that it soon becomes the more appealing way to live. I need to hear that one. Oftentimes, minor discomfort will be like, I'll be like, nope, I'm just going to skip that. So (laughs) that's a good reminder right there. This is where the the whole idea of... uh eating a frog every day kind of came from like, are you familiar with that axiom? Uh Yeah. It's the notion of like starting your day, doing something you don't want to do, 
like, you know, writing an email or the project that's got you overwhelmed, that there's there's some some reasonable brain research that shows like, yeah, starting your day with that thing you didn't want to do actually helps build momentum for the rest of the actions for the day. But what we tend to do is like, mm, that one makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to keep pushing yes. it off. And it sort of like yes. plagues your mind and actually diminishes your effectiveness elsewhere, which I think is good. I think this next one's really good too. The advice you don't want to hear is usually the advice you need. I spent a long time fixated on becoming hyper productive before I finally started wondering why I was staking so much of my self-worth on my productivity levels. What I needed wasn't another exciting productivity book since those just functioned as enablers, but to ask more uncomfortable questions instead. The broader point here is that it isn't fun to confront whatever emotional experiences you're avoiding. If it were, you wouldn't avoid them. So the advice that could really help is likely to make you uncomfortable. One good question to ask is what kind of practices strike you as intolerably cheesy or self-indulgent? Gratitude journals, mindfulness meditation, seeing a therapist. That might mean that they are worth pursuing. Oh, and be especially wary of celebrities offering advice in public forums. They probably pursued fame in an effort to fill an inner void, which tends not to work. So they are likely to be more troubled than you are. Again, this is kind of my point. Like a lot of this is, oh, it's, it's teetering on the line of like feeling almost scriptural. Yeah. But it's still super, it's still super helpful insight, I think. Yeah, absolutely. The next one's the future will never provide the reassurance you seek from it. Uh, as the ancient Greek and Roman Stoics understood, much of our suffering arises from attempting to control what is not in our control. And the main thing we try but fail to control the seasoned warriors among us anyway, is the future. We want to know from our vantage point in the present that things will be okay later on, but we never can. So the future, uh, it's never going to be like such this clear path that like, okay, everything's going to be fine. We have to keep moving into the future. Uh, keep taking one step after another. That's a good one. Here's another one that slaps me right across the face. The solution to imposter syndrome is to see that you are one. When I first <laughs> wrote about how useful it is to remember that everyone is totally just winging it all the time, we hadn't yet entered the current era of leaderly incompetence. Now it's harder to harder to ignore. But the lesson to be drawn isn't that we're doomed to chaos. It's that you, unconfident, self-conscious, all too aware of your flaws, potentially have as much to contribute to your field or the world as anyone else. Humanity is divided into two. On one hand, those who are improvising their way through life, patching solutions together and putting out fires as they go, but deluding themselves otherwise. And on the other, those doing exactly the same, except they know it. <laughs> it's infinitely better to be the latter, although too much assertiveness training consists of techniques for turning yourself into the former. Remember, the reason you can't hear other people's inner monologues of self-doubt isn't because they don't have them. It's that you only have access to your own mind. That, that's, that's a well-written one. All right. There's two more left. Read, read both of the headlines and then just choose one. Yep. Selflessness is overrated. Mm. And the next one is know when to move on. And I think those are both huge. But that second one, know when to move on, I think is the scary and difficult one. Like we said, this guy moved on at the age of 45. And sometimes you've got that ache in, in your gut going, ah, I kind of want to try something new. Or is it time to try something new? And just the fear of it, whatever it is, uh, can hold you back. And so he said, uh, that's there's some one about knowing when something's uh, that's meant a great deal to you, like right in this column has reached its end point. And then he ends like a good columnist does. But just knowing when to move on, I think, uh, is kind of the 
uh, what he's been talking about in this whole thing. And I think is a really interesting one for a lot of us to wrestle with. Yeah. And like all these articles, like I hope that they're at the very least helpful. You may disagree with some of it or all of it, but I hope it spurs some kind of conversation. We would love for you to feel free to engage in conversation, either in the comment section or shoot us a message. If you ever have a thought or a feeling about a past segment or, you know, a suggestion for a future one, we are fair game for all of that. And uh, it's been fun being with you all today. We hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life.